0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other, and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings
1: and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with psychotherapist Esther Perel. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello, hello. 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 Yeah, hello. Hello. I hear you, but you don't hear me. Oh, (laughs) no, I do hear you. Ah, hello, okay. hi. It's good to meet you. Yes, <laughs> you you say Esther, right, rather than Esther. Yes. Yeah, Esther. Okay. Good. Okay. The door is open while I adjust the mic. Sorry. Uh, um, did you have to travel through traffic to get here? I'm coming from
0: Sydney. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, what were you doing? Did you see
0: our friend Barry Lieberman when you were over there? You know. I wrote to her, but she was in Barrier Reef, and I was yeah. in Melbourne, where yeah. she's usually. And she was all sad that she couldn't come. And then yeah. she said she was going to try to come to the Vivid Sydney Festival, mm-hmm. where I was speaking. And she, but uh, that didn't happen. So, no, I did not see her. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I just, I don't want, let's, I don't
1: want to, I want to make small talk because I don't want us to start the conversation. Okay. Um, Maybe we'll should we, paper a more Chris, would you, you so like. So that you're looking straight when you're looking at the paper. Thank you. hmm Thank you. Um, do you have, I use I usually like to do about 90 minutes. Are, mm-hmm. you, are you okay to, to do sort of, that would be, if we start yes? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Think, okay,
0: good. Let me just make sure, one second. But I can always see these patients from here. Um, so. uh, I have them at 4, two. Yes, I'm good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, I'm so glad we've made this work. <laughs> yeah. um, Chris, do you need some levels? Yeah. Tell me, um, tell me what you had for breakfast today. Nothing.
0: <laughs> Lunch? I, I, no, I actually will tell you that I just arrived here and Paul made me a wonderful French press with Italian roast beans so that I can perk up before we start talking. Okay. Paul is, yeah, you gotta love Paul. I'm so I mean, glad. Freshly brewed coffee. He didn't just like press a button, you know. No yeah, capsules, right. no capsules. He's, real coffee.
1: Uh, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> ok, so Chris says we're good. Um, I think you know, I, I think as I uh, no, I think we'll just plunge in. i I want to um I want to have a slightly different conversation with you than than I think um most people do. I want to really speak about, you know, eroticism and erotic intelligence as you describe these things and delve into them and 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 human aliveness right so um yes we will talk about sexuality but i really i really want to be talking about that that expansive yeah, yeah, existential understanding okay so i know i know i know you you go there in your in your um in your writing as well but i'm i'm excited to draw you out on that so
0: yeah so let's just um you're familiar with the writings, or also the podcast, or y- like y- yeah. Oh, you... I've
1: I've looked, I've I've familiarized. I mean, I've I've with writings, with with the podcast, with other interviews you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I've been immersed in you <laughs> 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 to get to this moment, um, and I've been following you for a long time. But really, I just did a deep dive. Um, so yeah, so all of that. All, I'm interested in in the, the, the parts of you and the insights that you have that flow into all of those things. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I often, um, I, I know that you were um, born of, you know, that your parents were Holocaust survivors, refugees from Poland, that you grew up in the Jewish community in Antwerp, um, in a community of survivors. Um, which uh, is obviously very—it's a, it's a very dramatic way to begin a life, um, you know. And I—I—I I, I, I start um, almost all of my conversations inquiring about the spiritual spiritual background of someone's childhood, and you know, I find that um, in in my mind that is—I I understand that expansively, and that 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 can be religious formation and identity, but it's also the formative milieu of love, loneliness, loss. And I'm just really curious because you also, in your way, delve into the spiritual background of, 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 of human childhood. So I wonder how you would define and describe, the, you know, the spiritual background of a human childhood with, with yours as an example, where you would start with that, what that means and how it manifests.
0: I, I don't know where to start, actually. It's uh, it's not like I, I know from, um, from the beginning. But I would say that um, it probably starts or a moment that I kind of can remember is me asking um, why I do not have grandparents, mm. why I do not have uncles, why there's only the four of us, why they have an accent, why I came so late. Um, and that a lot of these very naive childhood questions Uh, basically pointed to a history that was presented to me um, quite Mm -hmm. matter-of-factly. I've often joked that my parents did not really have a course in child development. Mm -hmm. And the things that you say to a three-year-old versus a 12-year-old, it was presented to me from the start Mm -hmm. um, that they were in the camps, that they were the only survivors of their family that came out of the camps, um, that uh, the others were murdered, that we were Jews, that they arrived to Belgium, um, that they happened to be another five years illegal refugees in Belgium. All of that was presented like you talk about, um, you know, a walk in the park. It very yeah. affectless, actually. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, we lived in a very popular neighborhood. Um, first in Louvain, where I was born, before we came to Antwerp. Um, Every time we lived above the store, my parents had a a little clothing store and uh, then a lesser little clothing store. Mm -hmm. Um, And we lived amongst the the Flemish people, and there there was one Jewish family on the street, and everybody knew the Jewish immigrant family on the street. And a few times a year, we became ultra-orthodox. (laughs) And then we reverted back to the Hasidic background of my parents. Um, We walked to synagogue for an hour and a half. We went to an Orthodox shul. My mother comes from an ultra-Hasidic, aristocratic Hasidic gera family. And then we reverted back because whatever they wanted to do, they only knew one way of doing, and that was the old country way. Wow. Um, and we completely morphed from one world into the other rather seamlessly. And I think that has definitely been a major tailoring of my um, spiritual life and my cross-cultural life. Mm. And um, then you morphed back. You, you morphed. And in, then we would yeah. come back, uh-huh. we would morph back, and we would resume eating shrimps. <laughs> okay. I mean— yeah. Uh, literally like that. Um, mm-hmm. We had Passover. That be- we had a special set of dishes that came out on Passover. My mother would clean the entire house like she had always done in her village in Poland. Mm. Um, it was, you know, a different music was put on the play on the record player. Um, we literally travelled to another world. Um, we always spoke Yiddish and Polish and German in the house as well as Dutch and French, so that the language didn't necessarily shift. Um, and um, and these two worlds lived side by side in a way that only we knew mm. they can coexist. Mm. It was not visible to the rest of the world. Um, I remember that my father basically said that he was what, slightly angry, or not so slightly, with God, mm. um, and uh, he had no intention at that moment to want to live a Jewish life, but... On the high holidays and on Passover, I think his conscience was stronger than his anger, uh. and his tradition, and his sense of loss and continuity and identity. And so he would, for literally the one week and the other three days, morph. Mm. Oh, I feel like we could talk about
1: that for an hour and a half, but <laughs> um, maybe maybe we'll come back to that. I mean, I'm very curious about how that. That capacity to move between worlds, you know, shaped somehow what, what you do now. Um, I mean, I also read somewhere, I think this was in an interview, you said you talked about this massive curiosity that you always, that you look back and always saw in yourself. That you were interested in under, understanding yourself better and the people around you and people dynamics and these questions of, you know, how does one live better? Um, how do you talk to your mother so she understands you? and this. To me, this massive curiosity is also a a spiritual quality in an expansive sense of that word.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Mm. I think the sense of exploration and discovery and immersion and the ability to enter a completely foreign world while also holding on to oneself— was very much a, a way that I imagined I would one day be. I mean, I remember as a child, I would say to myself, I will live in a world where no door is closed to me. Mm. Um, because I, I and nobody will tell me if I can come in or not. Um, but that doesn't mean I will be with you, but that doesn't mean that I will become like you. Mm. Um, and very few people may at some point know the multiple facets. Um, I was curious because I think when you live in a store and you grow up in a store and you see customers come in and out every day and mom works till eight o'clock and therefore you sit next to her and you watch her do, you encounter an enormous amount of people. Right. And you encounter a dynamic. When people buy clothes, it's an entire psychological tableau. (laughs) Right, right. uh, You get the tapestry of life. You get the tapestry. And at Uh that time, it was an intergenerational shopping. Children bought clothes in the same store as the parents and the grandparents. And so you literally saw, you know, uh, the tapestry of family life unfold in front of you, um, the healthy ones, the disabled ones, the, the loved ones, the less loved ones, mm. um, and et cetera, et cetera. The gender dynamics, who pays, mm. who chooses, who decides, everything. It was literally a kind of an avant-première of a course in family dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then to see my parents swim in this, yeah. you know, and um, and... And I always thought none of these people have a clue who they are. And yet my father would take somebody and he would put his hand on their shoulder and we say, you know, when I arrived to this country and he would start telling these stories and I always thought to myself, how much do these people understand anything mm. of what he's saying? Right. But many of them did because they didn't need to understand him intellectually. And I think that was another piece of my cur- my curiosity and my understanding is that my father was illiterate; he had gone for three years to school, and I understood very early on that you can be grand and open-minded and deeply human without much knowledge and you can be highly educated and a complete uh, narrow-minded bigot right right so that allowed me to remain open to a lot of foreign people and later I, I, I hitchhiked a lot throughout the world, so that will that <laughs> is a sure bet of curiosity yeah. There's this observation
1: um, that you make, um, and I, I wonder—I wonder if you—if you were already observing this when you were a child—that coming out of that experience of um, a world of survivors, um, that some people did not had not died, some people did not die, and some people went on living. Um, did you start to see
0: that distinction? In, in? I don't know that I saw it then. Mm-hmm. Um, I do and I don't, because I remember my mother talking about some of her friends or relatives and who were often down and who wouldn't do anything. And, but I didn't frame it like this. This really is a frame that came to me when I wrote Mating in Captivity. Really? Which is in, yeah. Yes. Much, much, much later. And it mm-hmm. came in a very roundabout way where I was talking with my husband, Jack Sol about his work with torture survivors and asking him, you know, what's the process and how do you know when a person comes back and what kind of coming back does a person do after they have been in solitary confinement for years or this, uh, away, dislocated, etc. And, and we began discussing that, you know, there's something about when you, when you can once again take risks. Because it means that you are not completely trapped in a state of vigilance when you can once again play or experience pleasure or joy, because it means that you are not completely wrapped in the sense of dread. You you can't be on guard and let go. (laughs) And playfulness comes with a certain element of letting go. And as he was talking about this and his work um, at the Center for Victims of Trauma and Political Violence, I remember thinking, I said to him, this was what happened in Antwerp. Mm. I mean, they were, and, you know, when I say two groups, it's more a metaphor than than, than right. a, a literal description. But they were the people who did not die, and they were the people who came back to life. And I right. think that right. that applies to all trauma. I really don't think uh, there's a, an exclusive monopoly on that for, for my community, but that's where I learned it. And the people who did not die... Their homes were morbid. There was not really joy. The curtains were low. You couldn't really let go because you were constantly with a sense of dread, danger. Uh, You don't trust the world outside, etc. And if you experience pleasure, you almost feel guilty because it means that you went out on guard for the moment that just passed. And the people who came back to life really, in some sense, had less survivor guilt sometimes or had suffered differently or were able to reconnect with a certain fervor that basically said, I'm not here for nothing. I'm going to make the best of it. And they understood the erotic as an antidote to death. How do you keep yourself alive in the face of adversity? And from that moment, I began to actually think my book is not about sexuality. My book and my work is about eroticism. It is about how people connect to this quality of aliveness of vibrancy, of vitality, of renewal. Um, and that is way beyond the, the description of sexuality. And it yes. is mystical. It is mm. actually a spiritual, mystical yes. experience of life. It is a transcendent experience of life because it is an act of the imagination. Yes. And that is spirituality as well. Yes. Also,
1: also, and, I, and we'll talk about this more, I think, it's... I think that when, we, when we are actually in our bodies is actually when we can when we can when we can touch that uh, that kind of spirituality, right? And this is the ultimate embodied um, experience. Um, I and it, so it's interesting. Um, still, you you were a. I, it's interesting to look at your 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 background. I mean, I, I see all these threads. That mm-hmm. that now show up in the work you do, but 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 you you know you wouldn't have had a linear imagination about where this would all take you, um, and so you did. You went to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and you you studied Jewish identity and and of course within Jewish tradition and Jewish history there is this robust robust um, tradition of. How aliveness can follow—how aliveness can be maintained and and restored in the face of adversity and trauma um, and catastrophe—
0: and but I was particularly interested yeah. in cross-cultural differences of Jewish right, identity,
1: right? Right, and how that how Jewish identity shows up in different national contexts.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. because I thought Belgian Jews were not the same as French Jews, and mm-hmm. you know we were in Scout youth movement, so we were, we knew a lot of young people from other parts of the world. And the Argentinians were not the same as us, and uh, um, and and the Israelis had a different experience. The South Africans had yet another experience. Right. The Americans, the Germans, and I thought this is so interesting. It's like on the one hand we have this enormous sense of communality as a people, and on the other end, when you look, when you, we are still completely bathed in the local culture in which we are living. We yeah. sing different songs, we recite different poems, we dress differently, we flirt differently, you know. And that became a very interesting. It it was an endless project actually, but I stumbled upon it. And then and then were you? Did you become a therapist? Um
1: In any case, you were working for a couple of decades, right, before you actually started writing about eroticism and sexuality. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: I studied identity. I then did my first project in the United States was a project between blacks and Jews, looking at minority-minority relations. Yeah. Um, I came from groups before I went to couples. Um, I had done a lot of interracial, intercultural, interreligious work um, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe here. And um, um, I never thought about sexuality as a subject for work. I was interested, specifically I was interested in how do we, how do our relationships change with large cultural shifts? Mm. Basically, migration is a large cultural shift. And what's the difference when it's voluntary versus forced migration? And um, what about mixed marriages, intercultural, interracial, interreligious couples? You know, they also go through a cultural change, but it happens in their own living room. Or what happens when communism and, uh, changes and morphs into capitalist consumer societies, as in Eastern Europe? Um, or what happens when the digital revolution arrives? But basically, what? how do these big cultural changes enter the sheets, not just the broader abstract concept of relationships, but gender roles and child rearing practices. And that's what I wrote about for the first twenty years. A lot of my work was in that area, but I also had begun to train in couples and family therapy. Right. Um, and so I was a therapist for full full time and teacher and worked at NYU and supervised for twenty years Never thought I would write about sexuality. That was an accident, parcours, as they say, <laughs> uh, a, a blip on the road. Oh, no, no. <laughs>
1: but but you, so I mean so one thing that I that I that I see when I when I look at this is so you said and I do so want to under, underscore this that in that in that world you grew up in this this. Tr- World of uh, beyond trauma, that the erotic was an antidote to death, the, and and the erotic, um, as you say, is, mm, is connected to sexuality, but distinct from it as aliveness and vitality and vibrancy. And and so in that world, also, I mean, your parents literally met on the road, right out of the mm-hmm. camps and yeah. into liberation, and that mating was this basic unit of reconstructing community and. As you said, generations had been decimated. You didn't have grandparents. Your parents had all these siblings, but nobody had survived. So it was kind of reconstructing society. And then it almost feels to me like... And
0: reclaiming humanity. Reclaiming humanity. They had children almost to prove that they were still human. Right. That they could still bear fruit. And pro uh, orvo was definitely the command in, right. in Judaism as well. And um, it's interesting because so much today about people who have undergone severe psychic trauma and massive trauma and complex trauma, all of those things are often described as people who have difficulty connecting. And interestingly, separately from the quality of the connection, the majority of survivors partnered. Married, mm, had families. Mm, mm. Some of them were better families than others, happier families than others. But the 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 impulse to not stay alone and to recreate the unit of family, which was the central unit in Jewish life, right, um, that was was unquestioned.
1: And it was the family, as opposed to merely the couple. And I feel like you know a huge aspect of life in this early century that you are addressing is is how in a sense we've we've traumatized ourselves and even our ability to love with the kind of unnatural way you talk about the modern ideology of love and also how we've how we've turned the couple into this basic unit, which which is which is unprecedented in the in the history of our species, is that is Maybe. that too much of a stretch? Yes. No. No. To make no. That, make that I, I see.
0: No, I say that when we lived in the community. No, au contraire, I think mm. it's a, we lived in the community, and um, in that community, the couple served the family, mm-hmm. and you had a couple in order to have a family, to have children, to have economic support, companionship. Um, and social status, of course. And. If the couple didn't do well, it didn't really matter. I mean, it mattered a lot, but it didn't influence the the outcome or the survival of the family. Today, the happiness of the couple is the key to the survival of the family. That right. is a right. complete first. And then the couple... In the history of did, our species, right? I mean, In the history is, of our species. Right, right. right. That's why yeah. couples therapy has become also <laughs> what it is. I yeah. mean, it didn't just occur. And then I think what also was clear is that you had your partner, and with your partner you had an intimacy that came from living together and sharing the vicissitudes of everyday life, but not because you were sharing your deep, dark secrets, your longings, your aspirations, <laughs> right. your anxieties, your inner life, your interiority, you took to other people. And you had plenty of other people to take them to. And you didn't consider that a flaw or, or a shortcoming of your relationship. Right. I think the modern ideology has literally contracted the community And we are asking community that gave you belonging, identity, continuity, you know, and family. And now all of that has been placed on one person. So, yes, I have this line and it's become, um, you know, I think when I first said it, I don't even realize, don't think I even realized how much there was in that sentence that we are asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, partly because the family and the village is not around, you know, three thousand miles away and so you are there with your partner and everything falls on you. Yeah. Another way
1: another way you've said that I find help you said we've merged the love story and the life story.
0: Hmm. Sometimes I say things well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there was a context when I said it I don't yeah. it, it doesn't come out like that today but yes it's yes. really it's It's. Uh, I want with my partner I want a best friend and I want someone who is intellectually stimulating and emotionally available and compa- and sexually compatible and um, I want all of that with one person and if I have to go somewhere else I experience it as a flaw in the relationship yeah um, and I think that's a tremendous pressure. Uh, it was interesting to me to read in you that
1: um, family therapy, um, in fact, once upon a time, what that would have evoked was—or couples therapy, which would have been families therapy, would be focusing on problems with children. Right. And it is very recent that it evolved into just what's going on inside the couple. Um, because as you say, this was a a pragmatic institution, an economic institution, and and and— Um, You know, this notion of eroticism as distinct from mere sexuality, aliveness.
0: um, Came through rituals. Came through rituals, okay. Lots of rituals that celebrated, that marked life cycle transition, etc. They were often um, celebrated in a a community along a large table uh, with an extended family. Uh, you didn't necessarily go away with your partner alone right. to celebrate something that isn't necessarily seen as private. Um, you know, the, I, the marriage was the private, you know, the marriage lived in the center. It was one central relationship, but it lived in the midst of an aggregation of other intimate, powerful connections with their own sense of duty, obligation, etc., Um, your mother called, you know, you went, your father called, you went, your brother, you didn't, uh, and you didn't check to see what effect this would have on your relationship. The priorities were quite clear. None of this had to be negotiated and discussed on a daily basis as it is now. Right. Hierarchies were clear.
1: (laughs) And we still have, and of course in America, I mean, I spent, I spent um, most of the 1980s, most of my 20s in Europe and and Mm -hmm. so at that, Stage um, also what got countries? married. Well, in Germany mostly, but spent mm-hmm. a lot of. T- I mean, spent a lot of time in other in Eastern Europe and France, and uh, and then in the UK, and actually got married there. And um, I, you know, it, it. And so I think that gave me um, obviously a context and perspective that is, just, you know, that 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 exi- that coexists with my American perspective. It, and I, you know, I've. In this country, what we have left of that of the of the ritual of, of of a sense that marriage is held in something larger than itself really is the marriage ceremony, right? And when and when you get, you know, I think so many people um, experience, you know, that that there's something that there's something that happens that's larger than you um, in a wedding that is also about all of these people gathered together to witness your vows. Um, Mm -hmm. But then we don't have any structure for the marriage to continue to be held in something larger, which, which again, is so unnatural from the way people
0: lived before. I mean, you know, I think it's always interesting not because when people lived in a way where they were, you know, when they had a sense of belonging that was more defined, they had more certainty. But also more rules, more obligations, way less yeah. freedom, way less freedom. Yeah. We have unprecedented freedom, but we don't have. We, we are far more unmoored, and uh, um, and everything has to be talked about because there is no preceding agreement. Right. Um, right. I think. Right. I, I, so we have less. We have more freedom. We have more uncertainty. We don't operate just from a sense of commitment. The moral compass does not come just because we made the commitment. It comes from a personal truth. And that personal truth is a kind of a, what Eva Illus calls the regime of authenticity. Mm. And uh, that means I need to really know what I'm feeling and I need to be clear about what I'm feeling. I have to discern the exactness, the intensity, the meaning and the consequences It's exhausting, of isn't it? It's exhausting. Right, so that I will know to, how to act. And yeah. uh, um, that level of individualism, um, is is a different social order and um, interestingly in the places where people have too much of the atomization they talk about belonging and loneliness all the time yeah. and in the places where people know everything that's happening at the neighbor's house and you can hear every fight and every frolic uh, people talk about how they can create some sense of agency over their own life
1: yeah
0: <laughs> and, um, and we want the best of both we want the
1: best of both um <laughs> <laughs> And, um. I also, you know, another thread that I see in your life is that you actually got involved in street theater and puppetry, right? When you were in Jerusalem, yes. yeah, yes. And I feel like now something you do is you are involved in the theater of relationships and the theater of sex, love, and marriage, and and um. And and I feel like you're also. Bringing, making visible um, in, a, in a public way, something that in fact is very organic, but we haven't made visible in a public way. That, that the drama of our relationships is the drama of our lives. Um, and there's something you wrote, you, you talked about how the challenge of sexual intimacy is bringing home the erotic. It is the most fearsome of all intimacies because it is all-encompassing. It reaches the deepest places in us and involves disclosing aspects of ourselves that are invariably bound up with shame and guilt. So we're not just talking about naked bodies. We're talking about naked souls. And that, in fact, is the territory we've wandered into if we want to have (laughs) marriage and relationship the way we say we want to have them, which is – and really, where should we begin? Your podcast kind of lays that bare one couple after the other. I mean, that's one thing it does.
0: I think you said it very beautifully. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, I started theatre in my early teens in Belgium and I was very interested um, in um, the absurd theatre. UNESCO, Beckett, uh, Anoui and all of these people. And um, puppets, I thought was puppets, masks, street theatre. I mean, places where you get the freedom to say more because you are in a certain kind of artifice. And uh, it, you are you hide behind the theatricality. Um, I always thought that, that people's suffering should not be always so hidden. But that it was a legacy from home. I, I thought, you know, how so many years did my parents suffer and everybody else and. It's like the degree of aloneness that you can experience. You know, a spiritual image for me is where they cry to the heavens and they never hear. And uh, sometimes I have some of that sense in my room. People come and uh, and I'm thinking it's not what they're experiencing. It's the fact that they're experiencing it completely alone. It's compounded. Um, it's not that I just wanted to do exhibitionism and and invite a bunch of voyeurs to listen in on sessions. It's because I actually think that when you listen deeply, deeply to the experiences of others, you stand in front of your own mirror and you transcend that aloneness. Um, And I have always said the best theatre in town was couples therapy. (laughs) Um, But I couldn't do it with my patients. So I was thinking I would write it as fiction. I would write plays. And then I thought... There must be some other version, and it appeared to me. I had no idea it would become what what it has become. But um, it's a, uh, in a way, the recreation of a virtual village in which you do know more what's happening at a neighbor than we often know today. Where, you know, I have a, a friend who wrote to me this two days ago about how his wife passed away. She struggled for six months. He's in Paris. We see each other every time I'm in Paris. Mm. But for six months we haven't been in touch and here we are. And I wrote yeah. back, I said, You cannot not be in touch because life takes a turn and you didn't I had I didn't even know she was ill. Yeah. Um and isn't you know, he's not a close, close friend, but enough that we generally just check in. And I thought this is what happens at this moment, is that, you know, I, somebody goes and you didn't even know they were even sick it. Yeah, um, because it can go so fast. And that disconnect um, is what I'm trying to weave a little bit and reduce with the podcast. Um, it inspires people to reach out, to call, to check in with others, to speak, to have the conversations they've been meaning to have for, for years, to do it before the people are no longer around, etc., etc. Yeah, and
1: you use this phrase... Um Erotic intelligence, um, yeah. right? And I so I want to I want to talk about that because I, I kind of feel like what you're doing. I mean, it's very clear to me, and I'm not the only person who sees this. That we we have a very small toolkit of forms of intelligence in public life, right? In our life together, and what we in how we speak uh, in, in official places. Um, we have we have kind of factual intelligence, which is so limited and so so open to interpretation. And we don't we don't have great emotional or social intelligence in our in our shared life. And I, I think this this notion of erotic intelligence is another thing that you would add that actually is much bigger than sexual intelligence. So you one thing you you've read you wrote is sex is a language is it it isn't just a behavior. And it's the poetic of that language that I'm interested in, which is why I began to explore this concept of erotic intelligence. So so talk to me about what that is, both within and beyond the confines yeah, yeah. of a couple.
0: So I will be really honest with you. When I first came up with the term, um, my husband came up with the term, and it was a spoof. We thought there is you know um, <laughs> iq there right, is right. okay there there is emotional you go. intelligence yeah. and we just thought this emotional intelligence. intelligence right and right. then it became a concept that i actually had to define <laughs> you know at first i just thought, right. it, i understood it intuitively yeah. but but i didn't but really there was no nothing, you know, substantive and scientific behind it. I I did understand that animals have sex and and the person who really helped me to begin to discern between these two things was Octavio Paz in his book, The Double Flame, Mm. Essays on Love and Eroticism. And he, it's an incredible book about spirituality and eroticism and he talks about animals have sex. It is the pivot, it is the instinct, it is the biology, it is the base, but we have an erotic mind and in that erotic mind, it is infinite and eroticism thrives on the, the, the ritual and the celebration and, and the infiniteness of our imagination and it, and on the forbidden for that matter too. There's a transgressive element in that and that's part of why I became so interested in the, the how do you integrate this force into the domestic life that right. we also want? What is this dual sets of needs that we grapple with? But it what is interesting is that he says, um, poetry is to language. No, what, what, uh, poetry is to la- is to language what eroticism is to the body. Mm, right. And it made perfect sense. That's when I began to lift from. Sex is not just something you do; it's a place you go. Where do you go inside of you? What parts of you do you connect with? What do you express there? Is this a place for you for union, for communion, for spirituality? Is it a place to be safely powerful, to completely surrender, to abandon yourself? What, what, what is the experience? And, the, and, and then what is the language that you use to articulate that experience? And from that moment on, I stopped asking people, do you have sex? And I asked people, what does sex mean for you? Mm. and that's a question that very few couples often have asked themselves or each other and it opened up an entire different vista and then I began to understand in line with that same thing that I described from Antwerp was that the couples who would complain to me about the listlessness of their sex life they sometimes wanted more sex but what they really always wanted was better and the better was the quality of the connection You know, of the playfulness, of the renewal, of, um, of the transcendence. And aliveness. You aliveness. You can do sex and feel absolutely nothing. Right. And women right. have done this for centuries and so probably have plenty of men. So it's like, that's not what I was about. I couldn't care less. And that stuff you can't measure. It doesn't come with an outcome. It's a quality of experience. Right, it's, it's not about technique. It's not or right. productivity. It's right. art. Right. So erotic intelligence is the art of loving, in a way. Mm-hmm. If I took the Eric from, you know, it's the art of loving or the art of living, both. Uh erotic intelligence, it thrives on, on the mystery, on the unknown. Why? Because it comes with that element of curiosity and exploration. Mm-hmm. And that's why it sometimes butts with our need for familiarity and predictability and stability, because it, it actually... L- wants to go and 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 explore where it hasn't gone yet. Um, it, I like the the image of um, of the bridge um, of I and Dao because it it really is about crossing a bridge to go visit somebody else right. on the other side and being able to experience this duality where you are at the same time inside of you and inside another or others. And that sense of momentary merging, that is the spiritual quality that people often describe in sexuality. And then the kind of the retrieving and of the separateness. Um, it's all of that. And um, it's people aspire to it. People know when they're experiencing it. People would destroy their lives for it. Um, but it is not what happens in many of the situations. You know, um, people have often... A different kind of connection, which is fine as well. But you can have this without the act of sex. You know, we uh, we can have entire experiences without ever touching anybody, just because we can imagine it. Um, Right. And but what you're and what you're and there's so many things here. I mean,
1: one so, so one of the things you're so this really gets at what is kind of existentially important and civilizationally at stake in the fact that as you also are out there saying, we have a crisis of desire. Um, that we that, that the irony that we have the kind of the baby yes. boom generation that gave rise to sexual liberation and and yet and yet it is now kind of headline news that um, people know that interest in this is waning and conflicted and people are not having enough sex and and that does and this and the the complexity of desire I mean so yeah that's
0: that it's that is such a because desire is to own the wanting. Mm. That's one way of looking at mm-hmm. it. You can, there's a hundred definitions for desire. But the one I like, existentially speaking, is to own the wanting. And in order to own something, there needs to be a sovereign self that is free to choose. Right. And, of course, feels worthy of wanting and feels worthy of receiving. That's why desire is so intimately connected with the sense of self-worth. In the boomer generation, my question was, and that's kind of when I began mating, but we are so much further along now on that crisis of desire, it was, you know, why does this group of people, this generation that for the first time has contraception in their hand, premarital sex as a given, all in the West, of course, the permission to do what they want, and they don't feel like doing it, or at least not with each other? How come? Because there may be plenty of sex, but not where they would initially had imagined it. How come? That was kind of my beginning question. And I understood that people no longer come to couples therapy or to sex therapy, more accurately, because they have problems of functioning and behavior and, and pain. All of that is still there. But we all know in our field that a lot, there's a whole new set of issues that has to do with the crisis of desire, of wanting. And... How do you want the person that you love also? And how do you want the person with whom you want a set of other things that have to do with what love brings yeah. that is about about familiarity and about closing the gap and not having such tension and um, and creating family? And, you know, we have been forever raised to not have sex in the family if our head is screwed right on our shoulders that's not what we should want so how do we bring lust home is a real challenge that you do not solve with Victoria's Secret Um, and that becomes really interesting how do you continue to be curious next to somebody that you've lived with for 25 years and not think that you know already everything about them and curiosity is what will allow you to want to touch them differently because this time i want to touch you in a different stroke so that i can to see what you how do you react to that rather than doing the same routine every time every time and hope that that's going to make us want to do it again and 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 and, and again as you say that
1: so on the one hand you can talk about ways but this is really this is really work of the imagination i mean it's it's um so having Having walked down this new path in the history of our species, where we, where we expect and need these central relationships in our lives to give us so much, we we are. It's one of the things you're saying. You're saying many things. Is that we're actually driven Mm -hmm. back to work, to understand ourselves better, right? To unlock our imaginations, but also, I mean, I think what you're saying when owning the wanting, we have to get conscious about what it is we're wanting, right? which is a new
0: requirement. So the question I ask sometimes mm-hmm. is, um, I turn myself off by, right. or I turn myself right. off when, which right. is not the same as what turns me off is, yeah. or you turn me off when. Yeah. And this was a dear colleague of mine who passed away recently, Gina Ogden, who gave me that question. It was so clear, because if I turn myself off, what do people say? I turn myself off, when I don't take time for myself, when I am bloated, when I eat too much, when I'm worried about my children, when I fret about money, when we are angry, when we haven't had a moment to be together, when we don't talk about anything, when I feel disconnected from my body, when I'm critical of my body, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. It has nothing to do specifically with sex, it has to do with shutting down. And if you shut down, the other person can want you. You don't want to be wanted at that moment. You won't respond. It's like nobody is at the reception mm, to receive right. this. And when you ask people, I turn myself on. All the answers are about aliveness. I turn myself on when I listen to music, when I dance, when I play music, when I go out with friends, when I take care of myself, when I'm in nature, when I climb the mountain, when we play together, when we have time to just lounge. It's about a quality of aliveness. It's about the permission to feel good. Mm-hmm. And that comes with self-worth as well. Um, and from that place, if you approach me, I will respond because I am in the same zone as you and vice versa. Um, and that is a connection between the erotic force. It's a, it's a connection to a sense of life energy. Really, mm-hmm. um, that that enables us to experience pleasure, and in that place, we bring. Aspects of ourselves that are often not the most civilized parts of us. The erotic mind is very irrational and unclear. Like, why do do people like one thing and not another? And how do I let you know about that? And will you not judge me for that? And will you actually be curious about that for me, or do I have to just make it go underground? It is very, very uh, sensitive to censorship. The erotic mind. It knows exactly what. And to whom to show what. Um, and, th- and that's why people often will not show it to their partner. And then okay. with their partner, they have one set of connections, which are wonderful, and they will compartmentalize the other parts. And this is um,
1: kind of <laughs> re- seeing this is so different just, you know, between the... Well, I think the idea that a lot of us grew up with, because this whole romanticization thing happened very quickly, right? And it's so, so alien to what had been before. This idea that you get enmeshed, that you merge um, with another person, which,
0: which kills. Well, Plato already talked about it as well. But it, some pieces of the idea of the compliment, the missing part, my other right. half, like my you soulmate.
1: right, the soulmate. Do you? Um, I kept thinking of um, this idea of so. The, and again, this idea of yours in desire, we want a bridge to cross. Do you know that that Rilke imagery from Letters to a Young Poet of yes. two solitudes saluting each yes. other? It's
0: in the book. I have Is it. it? In oh, writing. I didn't. Yes. I didn't see it. Yes, I was yes. thinking about
1: it the whole time. Um, he, yeah, I mean that, and and he in that in that book, which you know I read when I was very young. He's, he's basically saying to young people. Don't you know? Don't do it. Don't even think you can love now, right? Because you have to, you have to know yourself, and you have to cultivate your solitude um, as something that is part of your liveliness before you can really be present to another
0: person. Um, yeah, and there's but just, that's yeah. a point of view, you know. they are really, I think it's a it's a conversation today about mm. uh, coupledom and about uh, you know is. When you are with someone, is the goal to never experience yourself as alone or separate, or uh, or is is a certain kind of separateness um, immutable and inherent to any couple? There is a point that you can never cross, and the only time you cross it is that in that momentary merging of lovemaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, do you and do you do you s- experience those as to Two potential ways to to think about this or,
0: or just... I think there are different emphases, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very much imbued with some kind of French existentialist philosophy. It's, <laughs> right. just, it's where I studied, it's where I lived for a long time. And so Rilke speaks to me, the um, um, oh, Chilean <laughs> friend... Uh, the uh, Chilean oh, poet uh, um, Neruda. Never, Neruda yeah. speaks Neruda, to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the poets who really Khalil Gibran speaks to me. I mean, the yes. people who described the bridge you can't cross mm-hmm. at the same time as the yes, many other bridges you cross. But that that um, that forever the person that is next to you is mysterious mm. elusive and unknown and if you can accept that yeah. then you will yeah then you have much better chance to remain forever curious and interested in them and erotically leaning in as we would say today um, it speaks to me i don't know that it is more true mm-hmm. than the, than other mm-hmm. views it's the view yeah, that yeah. i live with Yeah, here's Um, some other
1: language you wrote. Eroticism thrives in the space between the self and the other, and that we must be able to tolerate this void
0: and its pall of uncertainties, which also makes sense to me. I mean, faced with the unknown of our partners, we can either be anxious, and this is true with the unknown of life. We can be anxious. We can want to close the gap. We can want to seek the familiar in that space. Or... We can leave that space open and respond to it with curiosity. And I can tell you every couple in my office, I know exactly, you know, where they are on that continuum. It's not an either or, but you know if people are welcoming the unknown in their midst or if they are more in need of solid, familiar, predictable grounding. And it also has to do with their histories and their childhoods.
1: Right. Right. I don't.
0: I, I am, you know. There's but, that unfortunate fact again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it it shows you a different, you know. But it creates a different orientation to couple them as well, not just to life. Right. I mean, um,
1: I think I think we haven't just named uh, this kind of fundamental tension that is in us. Um, that is at the root of this that thing that we've been talking about, which which you write about so wonderfully. That, and this is just true again in 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 every way about being human. This need and desire we have for security and predictability and permanence and being anchored, and at the same time, this need and desire that can compete with that. And it seems like in a relationship is, well, I guess even I feel like at best at in a dance with that. Is novelty, this need and for novelty and adventure and mystery and risk
0: and the unknown? To me, these dual sets of fundamental human needs is is a is the basis for which I look at a lot of things. Um, I look at it in life, you know. I look at it in terms of life stages. I look at it certainly mm. inside um, mm-hmm. inside relationships and and how we reconcile these two fundamental needs that often spring from different sources and pull us in different directions. And I also think that love and desire belong a little bit to both of these sets of human needs as well. Right. Um, so they relate and they also conflict. And herein lies the mystery of eroticism. Um, I, I I think that in every couple you have this tension. Sometimes as a couple, how does the couple navigate, you know, creating the anchor, but also allowing yourself to float on the waves, um, but also between the people. I think that often you have a complementarity between one person who is more solid, yeah. more re- pre- the, the, the predictable, the rock, the, and the other person who is more the liquid um, and more, you know, Fluid, more able to take chances, more able to explore, pushing the other one, and uh, I I think it's a it's a a metaphor that I can use in multiple ways, and that makes a lot of sense. And it is it is non judgmental, it is humanistic, and um, and it can embrace many many other philosophies if you want.
1: Yeah, you know, I for all that is uh, going on in the world that is that feels, mm, you know, like we're becoming more primal rather than moving forward. Um, I also do feel that we're on this new frontier, and we're on it in neuroscience, and we're on it in evolutionary biology, and I think we're on it in, in you know, you're bringing it in couples therapy, that that we're actually reckoning with our... With with our humanity in a in, in in a new way that we're kind of forced to do this, um, that naming that tension, right, and 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 really investigating how, how does it turn up, not just as you say in a relationship, but in stages of our lives, and how can we be more conscious uh, of it and work more creatively and, and you know imaginatively with it. Um, it's quite amazing that we, that we are having this conversation and working these things out in, in all these concrete situations.
0: But, you know, I am trained in, in general systems theory. I'm a systemic yeah. family therapist. Yeah. And what we, I remember, you know, when that paradigm first entered me, um, this notion that every living organism straddles stability and change in nature, in companies, in societies. If you change all the time, you go chaotic. You dysregulate and you become chaotic and you may dissolve, disintegrate. If you don't change at all, you fossilize, you go stale and you may also disintegrate. And... Sometimes you don't choose it because if if you, right. your whole village is destroyed in a second right. by a tsunami, you have had such amount of massive change. You are dysregulated. You know, You the the, the society is dysregulated, the whole environment, the, all of that. So this image for me, I can take it from nature into technology and technology. Um, um, when I go to places where people are celebrating in an, evangel- an evangelical way the disappearance of everything that was and the replacement, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking, oh, la, 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 la. Right, and then when right. I go to places that just like sentimentalize the 19th century, I also say, oh, la, 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 um, because it, it is that interdependent dynamic balance between these two. That is where we really live. Um, we want certain things with technology, um, but we also want to stay connected to a certain kind of experience of our humanity and i have to say i'm very very happy that i work on the side of helping people connect yeah um, connect with, connect
1: connect with quality
0: right <laughs> but, you know we talk quality. about our, our yeah. connection
1: economy yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, style. we we're connected <laughs> but we're not connected with the no, no, quality no, that's what you're doing quality. yeah yes
0: yeah you know for mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways in all mm-hmm. kinds of unusual situations um, you know, it's so interesting. We were talking today that we were. I we, um, have a training platform called Sessions and we are going to do our annual um, event. And at first I thought I wanted to talk about the many faces of loneliness. And then I realized that, in fact, all these particular situations that I call loneliness, that are not the typical situations that we actually often talk about, what I was actually interested was the kinds of interventions that I could suggest to the other therapists and coaches about actually countering them and helping people to connect. And then I thought, why am I going to call it loneliness? Why don't I call it the many phases of connectivity? Yes. Um, I tu- you know, to turn it around, actually. Um, I'm very glad that that's, what I, that that's where I live at this moment and that that is what I... Um, offer to people because they come to me with a hunger for that. And Mm -hmm. so there is a a kind of a convergence between what I know and what I can offer people and what they are in need of that they don't know exactly how to access so easily at this moment.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so I did want to, I did want to muse on this with you that, that there's, there are a lot of big statements right now about how loneliness is the crisis of our society. Loneliness is the crisis of modernity, and and you know, I, I have I have different reactions. That I know what people are describing, um, that is real, but but loneliness, or you know, um, I mean, I mean the fact that we are each alone inside ourselves is the ancient is the ancient condition right and this is the existential uh quandary and and i think you know coming back to rilke it's it's like are you lonely or do we know how to be do we do we do we, do we can we inhabit solitude also as a as a as a um as a life giving part of being alive
0: do you know the concept of ambiguous loss?
1: Yes, yes. I've had, Paul, do you know Pauline Boss? Who yes, she, that's had her where on the I show. took the, yeah. Okay, so yeah.
0: I totally borrow that concept from her, but yes. I bring it into the conversation on loneliness. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, there, what you're highlighting is so important, you know, the difference between a kind of a fundamental acknowledgement of our existential aloneness is not the same as a feeling of loneliness in a sense of feeling dispensable, disposable, yes. uh, not good enough, uh, not not surrounded enough, uh, having to go through things alone that one shouldn't have to go through alone, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think those are two different levels of experience. I I like the concept of ambiguous loss because I think that it's a, actually a, it, a good description of. The kind of new form of loneliness that I think we are often describing. You know, ambiguous loss as as a cultural. As a a cultural phenomenon, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, to to explain. Ambiguous loss is, for example, when a person is still physically present, but psychologically gone, as if when they have Alzheimer, for example. Or if you have someone who disappeared, they are physically gone, but psychologically present. In both cases, you cannot resolve the question of mourning and loss because you don't Mm -hmm. know, are they here or are they not here? Mm When people describe to me being put on pause in a conversation or lying next to someone in bed who is scrolling through their Instagram feeds and is physically present but psychologically gone um, or is having literally another life with their phones or what they're describing is not a physical isolation of loneliness. They're describing a loss of trust and social capital that they are experiencing next to the very person with whom they should not be feeling alone.
1: Yes, I mean... That's ambiguous There nose. is nothing lonelier
0: than the inside of a bad marriage, right? I mean, you don't, no, there is nothing lonelier no. than the loneliness that you feel and when you are next to someone with whom you think that you one day... Mm-hmm. once did not feel lonely, yeah. and I will go even further. That one we know, the one we know less about is the loneliness of actually living in a marriage in which you may even be loved and you may be um, a cherished spouse, but you remain a famished lover. Mm. And that's a kind of sexual loneliness where you know you are loved, but you haven't felt wanted in years. hmm And you know the difference, men and women, straight and gay. So this is a different kind of loneliness in a relationship that actually, why I'm bringing it up is because what people experience is that they know this is a beautiful, warm, loving, caring space and they experience a sense of deadness on the inside. And that is that antidote to the erotic. Mm -hmm. It's the reverse. It's that there's a, a sense of, Deadness that creeps in on them, that they cannot experience, you know, the aliveness that would come from being touched, from being seen a certain way, from being kissed a certain way, from being held, from being eroticized by their partner, sexualized by their partner. Um, and that is one of the big secrets of many couples that I work with. I mean, one of the things you say is... Um
1: but, do you understand what I just? Yeah, said? I do because I mean one <laughs> of the things you say is if you fix the sex, you, that 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 in, in that a lot of therapy has been about fixing the relationship, and you'll fix the
0: sex. And you say <laughs> that it's the other way around. But when I say fix the sex, mm-hmm. it's not about helping people go through the act, right? It's, you know you can. This is not what I'm talking about. It's, it's about, about the that body. Language. Yes, the language. it's about the body. It's about the gaze. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows when they're being seen as the mother of their child or the husband as the father of the child versus when they're seen as, as a lover, as right. a partner. Right. Everyone understands that distinction. And when you don't care, it's no problem. Yeah. But when you do care, it is a form of loneliness and deadness that people can tolerate sometimes until finally they burst, you know, as Stephen Mitchell used to say, in acts of exuberant defiance. hmm and at some
1: really simple level, I mean, none of this is simple, but, but at some level, it, it, elemental level, is this about how fully we inhabit our bodies in, in a culture that has given primacy to talk and cognitive control?
0: Um. I'm not sure I understand the question i i guess i'm i'm
1: trying to i i guess i'm 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 just wondering and i and i'm i'm partly trying to um, to make the connection between this and our larger condition um, um because i f- i feel like a lot of i feel like the and that yeah
0: i don't see i i will put it to you like this. Yeah. I think that at the same time, we are a society that uh, where sex often flows in excess in all kinds of places. But when we actually really talk about the validity of people's erotic needs, sexual needs, we don't really value them. And especially in the US where often sex is treated either as smut or sanctimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is actually not really seen as valid in and of itself as a language, as, and in that sense as the continuation of our mother tongue, which is the language of the body. Um, mm. I think we are quite able to say it's lonely in a relationship where people don't communicate or there is resentment or violence or neglect or contempt. Or We all understand that form of loneliness. The one that we are less familiar with is the warm, cozy, caring relationship in which there is a relationship that is de-eroticized. It is the family relationship, right. but it is a de-eroticized relationship, and that that gives people a sense of loneliness and deadness that um, that feels so painful. And it is not an acknowledged one because it would require acknowledging the importance of the connection of the body in right. that sense. Right, You know, right. Um, that some people... And you can be affectionate and not erotic. Right.
1: And you... Um I mean one of the things you you teach is that you know is is that passion will wax and wane but that it can also be resurrected.
0: I mean the idea is that you know Passion is like the moon, right? It has intermittent eclipses. This yeah, yeah. notion that it just people will live in a permanent state of passion—no, of course not. Right? I mean, nobody would go to work for that matter. <laughs> um, that's not the. But people don't want to experience passion. People want to experience a sense of aliveness. That yeah. is really, and it is what they describe also when they transgress. It that what is that aliveness? It feels it's hope it's possibility, yeah. it's freedom, yeah. it's uh, the sense that there is still something to discover. It's the sense that right. when they say, is this it? There is no it because they don't know where that it is yet. Rather, what is the deadness? The deadness is the sense that this is it. What I know today is what I'm right. going to know tomorrow. Right. Then why live right. on, a, on a fundamental existential dread question? That's actually what follows. Then why live if there is nothing new still to discover? In life, um, you become hopeless. That, for some people, creates a sense of despair. For other people, that may create a sense of utter security because they've Mm -hmm. had plenty of unknown Mm -hmm. and surprise that was not of the good kind. And so just having tomorrow be the same as today is exactly how they want it to be. Right. And sometimes these two are in the same relationship, and that's why it's complicated, you know. Um, I think that, that... uh that's the way I see it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I I wanted I I want to um you, you asked about the passion that that, yeah, that no, you can resurrected. Yeah, I, I think I think what you resurrect is, you know, the moment you break a pattern, the moment you break a routine, be it in the communication, in the way you relate to your partner, in the way you talk about yourself, in the level of responsibility that you take your partner to you to the people around you 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 bring a certain energy right you the yeah. disruption as we all know creates a certain energy and that energy comes with possibility so instead of saying you know the usual I actually come with something different that creates an element of surprise in you that element of surprise in you at its best allows you to respond with something new allows me to respond to you in something new and now we are opening up the space between us. Right, right. In that space, we will begin to relate to each other differently. It's that. It's not that... When, because it's so dangerous when you use the word passion, people think that we're talking about tearing clothes. Yeah,
1: no, that's another word that gets overused. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So you have said that you believe that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our life. And I, I believe that too. And I... um and 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 people have said of of your podcast, which we begin that it is a public service. So I want to spend a couple of minutes, and this may just be stretching things, but i f- I feel like there are applications to and um, that to what you are teaching and what you know to our life together. Um, I, I have this thesis that I've been kind of playing around with speaking with people, is that um, you know that I, I want us to think about I actually this erotic energy, right this aliveness and 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 love as it actually works as opposed to as a romantic ideal that we actually possess a lot of intelligence um in our in our intimate lives and I don't just mean couples but you know with our family and friends and the people we love writ large um. We do all these things that would feel impossible in our life together. We, you know, we don't confuse love with likeness and harmony. Like I, I, feel like we, for me, a question for public life right now, which is very close to the question that you work with with couples, is like, can we get interested in it, in each other again? Um, do you ever think about that? About the, the kind of applying what you know about how love and erotic uh, intelligence actually work to life together. Um,
0: I, I do. I, um, how am I going to put this? Um, Eric Fromm, long time ago, was actually quite a visionary. He wrote in the 50s. But what he was very capable of saying is that we think that love is easy and that finding the right person is what is difficult. Right. Um, that it's the love object that is complicated, but the the experience itself of loving, um, and of course, he turned it on its head. Um, that love is a verb, that it's not a permanent state of enthusiasm, and that it's an actual practice um, that um, and and that that practice gets repeated all the time. Um, now, I have added a few, actually, I think I even. Love isn't something natural, I think he said. Rather, it requires discipline, concentration, patience, faith, and the overcoming of narcissism. It isn't a feeling. It is a practice. I prefer to say it's a verb because verbs are um, action-oriented. What I liked about that idea was, and I would add to it, is that there's an element of risk to have a fierce kind of intimacy, you have to be able to take risks. And the risk is that not everything about you will be liked by your partner. I think that one of the uh, strange concepts of the the romantic ideal is unconditional love.
1: Yeah.
0: Doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, doesn't exist, never existed for that matter. Um, love is conditional, completely. <laughs> Um, it's not a popular idea. I but, know. It's, uh, I, find, I find it so refreshing for you to say that. I stand by it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like you do things that are that are lousy. There is absolutely no reason that I should just continue to love you b- mm-hmm. despite it. No. We, in a way, I think we are demanding too little. Even strangely, right. like we demand all kinds of things that I don't know <laughs> about. Uh, you know, soulmate for me is God. It's not another person. And some, and some people have that connection. But it's so few, you know. Right. The majority right. of people, um, as I have also said, you pick a partner, you pick a story. What story do you <laughs> want to write? Mm-hmm. You know, and do you do you have enough freedom to choose the story that you want to write? That's the next thing. Um, write, you know, write often and edit well. But mm-hmm. it is a story. So now. In that story, there are things about you that will not be liked by your partner. And I like fierce intimacies when you see people who tell you there are certain things about their partner that drive them utterly crazy and always have and will never change. Yes. You know? Right. That I never discuss with him. We will never talk about that. Right. Right. So
1: much of love is deciding what you will not talk about or what you will not talk about
0: now because you actually
1: want to be heard.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm. And therefore, find somebody else with whom you can Mm -hmm. actually have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a different way of conceiving it. It works for me. Mm -hmm. I understand. When I say the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives, because I do think that the bonds and the connections that we forge with others give us a greater sense of meaning and happiness and well-being than just about any other thing, when it's good, because it can be exactly the opposite. Right, right. Um, And, now it's like, what, what? How much are you investing in your relationships? And I find that often people don't you know they talk about my partner is my best friend and they treat him like shit mm-hmm. um they they talk about my friend and they haven't seen that person or talked to that person in years it's like no you can't just do it like that you can't be lazy you can't be complacent about this and put all your energies at work and bring the leftovers home and all of that stuff or or, or you know I, <laughs> I have this question I've been playing with lately and i just asked it in Sydney. I was like, how many of you go to bed and the last thing you touch is your phone? Okay, stand up, right? <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. And how many of you the first thing you stroke in the morning when you wake up is your phone? Okay, yeah. stand up. And how many of you are doing this where there actually is another person lying next to you in bed? Yeah. yeah. That's ambiguous loss by the way. Yeah. I'm like, seriously? Yeah. Seriously? And then uh, so don't uh, uh, that's what uh, I'm trying to to address at this point. It's like Interestingly, we don't look at relational health enough. We don't connect it to mental health. We don't connect mm-hmm. it to our overall physical health, and we certainly don't connect it enough to our societal health. Right. If we want to really b- go go bigger. Um, it's it's not the freedom that is our problem. It's not the fact that we have choice, but they but they have always gone together with responsibility with accountability, and. What happens is that the people who talk about freedom don't talk about accountability enough, and the people who talk about accountability don't talk about freedom. So the whole thing gets polarized rather than integrated. Yeah, Politically, and then, it is like that, and mm-hmm. in the psychological field, it is like that. It's like that all the time. And that that power, that life
1: force of imagination is lacking, too, in, in, in all of those either-ors. That life, yes. Yeah,
0: yes, that, that because I think that one of the losses of this moment is the loss somewhat of our intuition. Mm. You know, there is a different kind of knowledge and information that is much more data driven, that is systematized, that tries to be rational um, and that is taking away our ability to sense things, to be in an iterative process of relationships and to and to suss out, you know, and to live with ambivalence. I think that that's great. A product of our imagination. you know what is intuition? It is a non-judgmental way to actually assess another person um, that is not rational, uh, but that is driven by the meaning that that person has for us. Mm-hmm. And that form of knowledge is not as popular these days. Yeah. Or certainly not in the West. And I think that it is a fundamental piece of knowledge that people need to have in relationships. Because when you don't have that, then you're left just dealing with borders and consent and rules and things like that, yeah. rather than, you know, the ability to 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 play. Because it is ultimately mm. to play. We're back with, at play. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. I think it is the essential. Mm-hmm. You know. If I had to say what's one, you said curiosity at first, mm-hmm. and I would say play. But play and curiosity are so intimately interwoven. Those are probably two of the most central elements imagination, playfulness, curiosity, mm-hmm. um, which go with risk. Risk is when, you know, when I would say play is when risk is fun, says my friend Isabel, who is a primatologist and studies ah. the. the You know, it's really, play is when risk is fun. But you can't play when you are in a situation of danger, anxiety, or contraction. So you have to feel safe in order to play. But if you do not play, you won't experience the erotic. And
1: this is about all of life, right? It's not just about your relationship with your partner. It's also going going back to what you saw about how people emerge from trauma and manage
0: to still be alive. But, you know one of the most important concepts was to understand that there was laughter in hell. (sighs) Say some more about What do you mean? That in this, I I actually learned it in two different ways. I did it, I learned it once through through my parents and their friends, you know, and when they would talk about things in the camps, they would sometimes just laugh about, you know, because laughter, when you laugh at something, it, it means that you still have a, a perspective, which means you still have an autonomy about your condition, mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. are not subsumed by what is done to you by somebody. And then I did a theater project with torture survivors from Chile, and we Had interviewed them and bear witness and we were enacting their stories and they were very serious. We wanted to make sure that we had reverence for their pain. And the first feedback we got from this whole group of people was, where's the humor? Hmm. You know, what made us survive was not just our determination. What made us survive was also our ability sometimes to cry instead of laugh, uh, to laugh instead of cry, sorry. And that Concept became very important to me, to the point where, globally, I think it matters. But also in my own work, I think that when I see people and they have zero sense of humor about their relationship, it's not a good sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean Bergson. There's, there's a whole philosophy school that spoke about this importance of the humor as this ability to have to have distance, ownership, a say over the matter. Um and to transform it, to change its meaning to to um that's why every group has humor about itself, and that humor is it's a is an ambiguous thing, and these days we're losing that too, yeah, you know we we become super earnest and you can't say anything about anybody and um you know. It was so important. Every group has survived by having a, a kind of a, a kind of humor about itself, a self disparaging humor about itself, but in the best sense of the word because it says I own my story. Yeah. That's, not you. That's also the survival of the fittest,
1: right? That's the, that we tell ourselves a narrow story, but that's also how groups survive. Correct. And play is essential to that. Humor is play. So so I think, you know, you're we we're we're winding down, and and I think you're getting you're pointing back at this, you know, what this erotic in, intelligence is, what this life force is that that is so important in a relationship, but in fact in in aliveness. And you know, I just I wanted to ask you, you know, we are now living in this world where people have long, long lifespans, and many different chapters, um, where it's not just that this ideal of finding the soulmate and living with them happily ever after doesn't work. It's just that life, I mean, even if you find that soulmate, um, you may still have, you may live, you may be married for 40 years and then have 20 or 30 years alone. I, I, I just, I, I don't know what I'm, I, I, one thing that feels important to me as I get older is really taking delight in the many, many forms of love in my life, right? My friendships, that that, That some of that same energy, you know, that er, that word eroticism is so closely associated with sex. But I, you know, and I I even feel like, you know, what what love can look like in in public in civic life
0: um, um, uh, that. I guess but I you yeah, know. When people yeah. are engaged in revolutionary movements, they mm-hmm. feel erotic. Yes, yes, you're I, so I right. I really think it's so important yes. to understand that eroticism that, that, narrowed down to the pure sexual meaning is a is yes. a is a real re- reduction of what the word stands for. Yeah, um, it it is about. It's a transgressive force. It is about breaking the rules. And the rules may be that through my imagination, I can remember the breasts that have been confiscated or the hair that I no longer have or the partner that is no longer alive or or the, the body I no longer have because I had an accident. It is that is erotic, and, you know, it, because it, it takes you outside of the borders of reality and the limitations of life. Mm-hmm. Um, if we didn't have that, we couldn't be living yeah it's 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 that fundamental, and whenever it gets just brought into the sexual realm, it really loses its richness and its meaning. Why people you know need that, and yes, you want the love of you know this idea that the romantic relationship is the penultimate the one in which people will feel, you know, this complete self-actualization and all the fundamental survival needs, but then on top of it, self-actualization and, and the best version of themselves. No, people mm. sometimes, the best version of themselves is not in their romantic relationships. Right, right. It's in their relationships to their employees or to their mentees or to their mm. friends. And I think... And especially in a moment where the community structure isn't there to hold us, it is the multiplicity of these different relational arrangements that really has to become the foundation for many of us. And if you have a hierarchy of relationships, if you call some people single and some people partnered, for example, you know, the partnered person of today may not be tomorrow and wasn't maybe yesterday. And the single person of today will be partnered tomorrow. What kind of a distinction is this at this point? You know, Um, it it doesn't fit anymore. We go in and out of many, many different kinds of relationships. And, you know, I... I finished one day uh, one of the TED Talks with this line that I, I, it became, but you know, it's another one of these lines that took on meaning with time and with other people reflecting back on it, where I said many of us these days are at least going to have two or three marriages or committed relationships in our lifetime. And some of us will do it with the same person. Yeah. And yeah. those people who do it with the same person, that is erotic intelligence. <laughs> right right because they're able to reinvent themselves on location and to create a new relational arrangement with each other and if you cannot do it with each other you'll go do it somewhere else but you need to do it because if not you die that is the if mm-hmm. you don't you know you need to change to continue to stay mm. Alive And and it involves novelty. But novelty is not about new positions. You know, that's what people then end up thinking. You're yeah. talking about sexual. Po- right. No, novelty is new experiences of yourself in the world and of your partner in mm. relationship to you if you're mm. talking about a partner. Mm. But if not, it's new experiences of yourself in the world. And that involves taking risks, having an active engagement with the unknown, as Rachel Botsman calls it. It's it's you know and when people do it there's a sense of purpose there's a sense of aliveness there's a sense of joy there's a sense of transmission there's no age there is mm. no age mm. you know mm. right. in the chronological right. sense yeah. because you are in touch with life yes
1: um that that's probably uh, that's a really amazing last word i do i do want to ask you this question um and I don't ask everybody this question because it's it's enormous, but just how would you begin, given the life you've lived, the things you care about and see, how would you begin right now to answer the question of what you've learned about what it means to be human?
0: I think that what it means to be human, for, there are many ways to answer it, but what comes up for me immediately is... We all come into this world with a need for connection and protection, and with a need for freedom. And from the first moment on, we will be straddling these two needs. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the what is me and what is us, um, what one of the other very this is probably a, a more added, but. You know, the the, the the common parlance today is I need to first work on myself. I need to first feel good about me or, you know, solve me before I can be with somebody else. And I find that also a strange thought. You know who you are. You know, you discover who you are in the presence of another. Mm. Um, and so this constant dance between me and you, between I and thou, is at the core of being human. What right do I have to do for me when it hurts you? How much can I ask for me and not give to you? How much do I give to you until I feel that I have not given enough to myself? Mm. Um, How much do I make sure not to lose you but lose me in the process? Or how much do I have to hold on to me but lose you in the process? That tension, that dance for me um, is very much at the core of being human. Freedom and responsibility, which probably is kind of the core of existentialist thinking. Thank you so much.
1: This has been really exciting and pleasurable. And I wish we could keep talking longer, but hopefully we'll have that chance in the future. Thank yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day.
0: Was I, was I coherent
1: enough? <laughs> yes, you were absolutely coherent. No, it's just there's so much to go into. Um, it was a big conversation. It was great. Um, and you love conversation, right? This is your passion, too. Yeah, uh, no.
0: I mean, it is yeah. so
1: many different directions I, know. I could go. I know, I know, why, uh, I know. Uh, oh, you should see my notes; they're all completely marked up and scribbled you know. on. And then
0: I try to. And then I'm thinking, no. I mean. You know, she's giving me the opportunity to talk about other things. I don't have to say some <laughs> of the things, but then I think, but they won't understand it if I don't say that first. <laughs> no, no, it
1: was wonderful, and we have to. Um, we edit it down for the broadcast. I don't know exactly when we're airing this. It may be, it may be in the fall. We may be producing it this summer, but no, soon. Oh, we're it's going to be on this summer, so we'll let you know, and. Mm-hmm. um
0: Yeah. Uh, You edit it to one hour. Well, we edit
1: it for public radio, so yeah, so for for the radio hour, but we also always put out the unedited interview on the podcast feed as well. So people can see both. Yeah. Wonderful. It's delightful to meet you finally. Yes. (laughs) No, but we are gonna meet meet. I know, I know. I'm excited. (laughs) I know I couldn't say a word about that (laughs) I know, I know. Well it's also it's felt so far in the future and now suddenly I can see that it's coming and it will feel like tomorrow. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful. Okay. It's a pleasure. Yeah, Great. you too. Thanks All right. a lot. Yeah, bye-bye. bye-bye.